0: You'd like to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5 and just uh, park your finger there. Keep that place. We're going to visit that in just, uh, in just a moment, but um, I want to share some things with you uh, going back to last week when I spoke to you about the tragedy of abusive relationships, and I primarily... Um, spoke about uh, verbal abuse, uh, emotional abuse, the kinds of uh, foolish things that we say to one another, and in some relationships, they are a a chronic and constant habit that uh, tear one or both down on a consistent basis. Uh, Emotional abuse is truly a tragedy. The old uh, saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never harm me, is a lie. Bones heal. Wounds of the heart do not. Uh, Not as easily. And they take longer. And they cause greater grief. And words often are um, those uh, darts, those fiery darts that the enemy uses... Uh, to bring discouragement and despair uh, and disheartenment. And so uh, it's important that we guard our tongues. And as Paul says in Ephesians 4, Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, for building up according to the need of the moment, that it may give grace to those who hear. This morning, I want to take that a little bit further, and I want to talk about the heartbreak of domestic violence. And I want to share some statistics with you that are really startling, uh, because they open our eyes to a problem that is prevalent in our culture. According to... Uh, things that are reported in questionnaires and reports of counselors who give anonymous indications of their clientele, 33% of women and 25% of men are victims of all kinds of abuse by their intimate partners. One-third of all women And one fourth of all men are victims of some form of abuse from their partners. 25% of women and 14% of men are victims of severe violence. And only about a fourth of those episodes are reported to police. Uh, When I was uh, serving the community as a paramedic on the rescue squad, um, going into situations where someone had been sufficiently injured by domestic violence that they required an ambulance response, I was amazed that no matter how badly hurt, most people and most women in particular would not press charges, or file any police complaint against the one who had caused their injuries. Um, One evening stands out particularly in my mind where the wife of a police officer was pushed down a flight of stairs breaking her ankle and uh, the officer and the responding officers were in the kitchen telling jokes to one another while his wife lay on the floor of the living room with a broken ankle. And she refused to press charges. I was utterly amazed. A statistic that is rather startling is that from 2001 to 2012, in both Afghanistan and Iraq, 6,488 American troops were killed as casualties of war. In that same period of time, 11,766 women were murdered by their male partners or ex-partners. Twice as many women were murdered by their partner or ex-partner in the same period of time as the casualties of war among children 6.6 million children are annually physically abused and of those and, and out of that statistic it makes the United States the worst record Among industrialized nations, we are the worst in the world among modern industrialized nations for child abuse. Four to seven children a day are murdered in domestic violence episodes. And that, of course, does not include abortion, which we don't legally call murder. In this country, why would I be concerned about this? And why would I take your time on a Sunday morning to bring a message about domestic violence? And the reason is because statistics also tell us that these facts hold true across all socioeconomic and religious lines. That Christian families are as at risk as people outside of the church or any other religion. That the same amount of abuse occurs in what we would like to think of as Christian homes, as does in the world at large. In fact, the last statistic I saw, not related to abuse, but on the subject of divorce we had a 1% lead over unchurched people in divorce, in the rate of divorce, 51%. It's amazing how many problems exist within the church of a significant nature. So, to be honest with you, and not to point any fingers, I don't know to whom I'm speaking this morning. These secrets are well kept. But I believe that in a group this size, there has to be some uh, who are experiencing, either as the victim or the victimizer, these kinds of things within their home. And so it's important every once in a while that we choose the tough topics and we take a hard look at what's going on. James tells us that the Word of God is a mirror. We look into it, and it is intended to show us ourselves in comparison to God's plan revealed within the Scriptures. As we read the Bible, it is designed by God to expose our true nature. James tells us that some people look in that mirror and go away and say, My, how handsome I am. (laughs) My, how lovely I look. They failed to see what the mirror was actually showing. But the Scriptures are designed to reflect for us God's standards, God's ideal against our behavior so that as it exposes the, the pimples and the Warts and the blackheads and the problems that we have in our faces that God can begin to work on the correction that will bring about our holiness. The word is intended to be a, a, a word that will wash us and cleanse us and sanctify us, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And friends, I I want to remind you again, because this is so terribly important. I'm holding forth in front of you this morning, in a moment, ideals that neither you nor I can actually accomplish by ourselves. These things are beyond us because of our natural sin inclination and our propensity towards selfishness. And so when we look in the mirror of the Word and we see the blemishes, it is not intended to say, okay, Paul, this is what I expect. Try harder. It is intended to point out where I am failing so that I will lean more completely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. My reaction to the blemishes that I see is not... I need to work harder at this, but oh God, I need to depend more on you. I need the power of your Spirit to make me more like you, because I can't do this. This is not who I am. I'm something else in and of my own nature. I need the power of your Holy Spirit to transform me. There is clear guidance in Scripture for marriage and family. I quoted you statistics this morning to begin with because I want to get your attention. I want to highlight this problem and difficulty. But we will not advance our own sanctification and holiness in the power of the Holy Spirit by examining the problems. The problems are there. The way that we are moved toward righteousness and godliness is to examine the genuine article that God intended, and then come to God humbly and say, Lord, make that true of me. As I look at it this morning, it's not true of me. Make it true of me. I come to you and ask you to change my heart, and to change my nature, and to live through me in such a way that this will be demonstrated In my life. In verse 21 of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul transitions from a general admonition to the church at large into a specific admonition in marriage and the family. And the last thing he says as he makes this transition, verse 21, is be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. I just want to highlight that as we move into this, because every time somebody preaches on Ephesians 5, most people say, oh, here we go again. Wives, be submissive to your husbands. I've heard that like 5,000 times, and I'm tired of it. And that's not where I'm going. (laughs) There's a general admonition to all believers. We are to put others ahead of ourselves. To be subject to one another in the fear of Christ means to consider ourselves below the other people. I'm not talking about in terms of worth or value. I'm talking about in terms of preference and personal desires to put one another ahead of ourselves. We're going to be looking at the uh, advent and the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ starting next Sunday. And one of the things that we will discover in some depth along the way as we study it is that although Christ existed as God, face to face with the Father, and had every right to be honored and worshipped and respected as God, He counted that, of no significance in the interest of becoming in the form of a man and taking on a human likeness in order to redeem us. In other words, he set aside what was rightfully his in order to reach out and recover us, rescue us, redeem us by subjecting himself to our need. And that's Paul's general admonition to the body of Christ. Be subject to one another out of respect and honor for Jesus Christ. And then he moves into this passage. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is also head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to the wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you is also to love his own wife, even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. I want to share with you, I have written down four foundational truths, but I'm I'm going to add a fifth one as it occurs to me. First of all, marriage is intended to be the clearest example of love between Christ and the church. A godly marriage is intended to demonstrate to the world, to people observing you, what it is like in the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. That is what marriage was designed to reflect. God created the idea. He came up with it. It's His plan. And His intent was that the ideal marriage relationship would reflect the love between Christ and the church. Secondly, marriage is one of God's most effective Crucibles or tools for making us holy. Did you know that? (laughs) Marriage is one of those cauldrons that God drops you into (laughs) and it begins to boil and bubble, and the dross rises to the top. Uh, It's intended to be a crucible that yields the purest gold. Marriage is not easy. It's difficult. It's a challenge. It's a lifelong commitment and endeavor to be something you are not naturally and to allow God to work in your life to make you more like Him. Marriage is not a 50-50 proposition. It is a 100% zero commitment. I don't do a lot of marriage counseling anymore. The last time I told someone this, they left the church. they told me they wanted to know what the Bible said. And I said, well, the Bible said you don't have any rights. And you have no right to any expectations. Your commitment is to love your spouse 100% no matter what. (laughs) You're crazy. (laughs) You are absolutely crazy. I'm not having any of that. But that's what the scripture says. It's it's not just marriage; that that principle extends to a lot of things. Adape love, true committed love, does not take into account my needs, but the needs of the object of my love, and that is the primary objective of the commitment. Therefore, marriage is not about you. It is about Christ and your spouse. It's not about you. These are hard things. And they are contrary to everything that our culture is telling us. You have a right to be happy. You have a right to do what you want to do. You have a right to realize your own potential. You have a right to become what you want to be. If you're married, you don't have that right. You have a responsibility to love your spouse and to care for your spouse in the relationship that Christ has with the church. The fifth thing that I'm going to add, uh, because... It's sadly a reality, and it also exists between Christ and the church. Marriage takes two people. One person cannot have a marriage. In other words, your partner can walk, and there's not a thing in the world you can do about it. That's a hard truth to hear as well, but Jesus gives us the privilege of obeying Him or walking away from Him. He does not force our obedience. He does not demand our commitment. He asks us to love Him and surrender our heart to Him. But He does not demand it of us. He loves with open palms and gives us the privilege of saying no to Him which when you think about saying no to Almighty God, it's a pretty ghastly concept. One day it will cost. But right now, you can say no and you can walk. And there's nothing that a partner can do if the spouse won't play the game. And we have to come to recognize that because a lot of times people get blamed for things that they have nothing to do with. Friends, None of us are perfect. None of us get it right all the time. We're all broken. We all come into marriage with baggage. The one thing that I tell couples whenever I have the opportunity to do premarital counseling with them is, if you will commit to one another for the rest of your lives, you can work through that stuff. If you bail. There's nothing that, that anyone can do to make that difference. It's a lifelong commitment to be willing to be humbled, to be broken, to be transformed, to learn to love, to learn to sacrifice, to learn to give, to learn to be what Christ would have you be. And other people can just simply walk away from that commitment. And you can't stop it. You may have all kind of problems. You may have all kind of troubles. You may do a lot of things wrong. But if you don't walk, God can see you through. And if your partner does walk, that's on them, not on you. And in our culture today, where half of marriages end in divorce, We have to come to terms with that within the church. And we have to take care that we're not throwing blame around and and being judgmental where we have absolutely no right to be. Because we live in a society that is a me-first culture. And there are people who are not going to stay the course. There are two things that I want to focus on out of this passage this morning that I think if we would look in the mirror of abuse and reckon with ourselves in these terms, it would go a long way towards stopping the wrong behavior. Paul says to husbands, love your wives the way Christ loves the church. And he says to wives, see to it that you respect your husband. This does not mean that husbands are not to respect their wives, and that wives are not to love their husbands. If I stumble into a stereotype here, Forgive me, but my impression is, from Scripture, my my sense is, that the greatest trouble that men have is loving their wives the way Christ loves the church. And so Paul highlights that issue for men. Women have an easier time loving their husbands, particularly when he's just even half-decent, than than men have loving their wives in that committed, sacrificial sense. But on the other side of the coin, I think women have a little more difficulty respecting their husbands when he doesn't live up to their standards. Or, worst case scenario, he's a couch potato. They have a hard time having that respect and that honor that Paul says is important in a marriage relationship. And so it's not that men are excused from respecting their wives or that women are excused from loving their husbands. It's just that Paul takes the the, the key issues in our lives and, and he says husbands... Love your wife the way Christ loves the church. And wives, see to it that you respect your husband. What does this mean? Well, fortunately, Paul doesn't leave us to wonder. He says, husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's what Christ did for the church. and You can't do that for your wife. You can't make her holy and blameless. You, you can't wash her with the word, so to speak. Some... People have written whole books on how you can do that, but I I don't think that this was intended to be interpreted that way. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Nobody ever hated his body, but cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. The key terms here are, love your wives as Christ loved by giving himself up for her, Nourishing and cherishing her, dying for her, that she might be all that God had destined and desired her to be. A committed marriage relationship in the Christ centered understanding of that commitment is that a husband's task in marriage is to put his interest aside in the interest of ensuring that his wife become all that she can be in the Lord. All that God has made her to be. Helping her fulfill her highest potential. Committed to her A destiny and her glory as a sister in Christ, being devoted to her in love, sacrificing for her, giving himself for her as the most important focus and objective in his life. And guys, let's face it, we have trouble with that. Because we got stuff we want to do, we have things, we have our goals. We have our interests. We, we, we want to uh, pursue our careers. We have all of these things that uh, are important to us. And in the midst of that, and, and God doesn't tell us that stuff's wrong. He just tells us that in a marriage relationship, somehow or another, it all has to move toward a goal of being committed to this woman that I have married. Loving her as Christ loved and giving myself for her. That's the goal. So where do your rights come into that? To demand your way. To expect your fulfillment. To want to have the things the way you want them. I don't see it in the passage. Every time, I, I'm always concerned every time I get near this passage, first of all, it always makes people mad. Secondly, it, it, it inevitably hurts some people. And I, I don't like to do that. I told you last week, I like to make everybody happy. And this doesn't make everybody happy. So, But the other thing is, is that, Inevitably, when a married couple reads this passage, the wives pay attention to what the husband's supposed to do, and the husband pays attention to what the wife's supposed to do. And that's not the way it was written. You look in the mirror. If you're a man, read the stuff it's talking the husband's about. You can just, you can just blank out the wife part. It doesn't apply to you. You can't say, but, but, but she, she, she. No, no, it doesn't apply. It does not matter. You have a responsibility before God to love as Christ loved. How did he love me? In that while I was still a sinner, he died for me. You know, it's interesting, and I'm not suggesting you live with someone that runs around on you all the time, but it's interesting that while the Bible permits divorce for infidelity, it does not command it. You're not wrong if you shoot, because the partner has broken the covenant. So you're not wrong if you. Choose not to live with someone who's running around on you. But you're not wrong if you choose to stay either. Christ loved me when I was a sinner. He gave himself for me when I was in the gutter. He rescued me when I was a mess. And he didn't ask me to get all cleaned up first. He said, I will take you to myself and I will clean you up. I will take on that responsibility because I love you the way I have found you. I'm committed to you. I died for you. I gave my life for you. And I'll stay with you until the end because I'm committed. I don't have any negative comments and I don't have any blame for someone who leaves a marriage because their partner is hopelessly addicted to sex and other people and won't stay faithful in a marriage. But it's not a commandment. It's just a permission. Permission. And the scripture says that we are to love our wives the way Christ loved the church. And by the way, ladies, as I said, the focus is on men here, but obviously you need to love your husband. Obviously, he needs to hold preeminence in your life. And when Paul goes on down further and he says the wife must see to it that she respects her husband, the concept here is that one of the more difficult challenges for a woman is to respect a man who has lost face with his wife. And you know the sad reality of that is that nearly always happens. You get married with stars in your eyes. As one person put it, when your heart's on fire, smoke gets in your eyes. <laughs> you, you just miss all the signs. And besides that, he's on his best behavior. He really wants to woo you and win your heart. And once the deal is sealed... And by the way, we live in a culture where people live together, sometimes for years before they get married. Did you know that that does not help the marriage? In fact, it actually contributes to a slightly higher divorce rate. Do you know why? Because when you're living together, even, you're still kind of on your best behavior. Oh yeah, you see a lot more of each other and the warts start to show a little bit. But once the commitment is made, man, I don't have to keep that game up anymore. And all of a sudden the true colors show. And people that have lived together for months or for years before they're married are suddenly shocked that they don't know this person they're with now. And they're shocked because they don't have to act so good anymore. They sealed the contract. It's all settled. Now I can relax. And once men begin to fall off their white horse, women begin to lose respect. And as a consequence of that, the marriage begins to suffer tension. Ladies, I don't know if you realize this, but if you're married, you have tremendous power over your husband. You have tremendous power. And I'm not talking about the bedroom. That's Everybody talks that way. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in the capacity to encourage and build self-esteem or to tear it down by your words and your respect. There is nothing that can shatter a man's spirit faster than a wife who tears down his dreams and his vision In his heart. Nothing can shatter a man faster. And if it goes on and on and on. The the hope is lost. Other people can say anything. Other people in business can say anything. Neighbors can say anything. The guys can say anything. Other women can say anything does not have the effect that a wife has when she is critical and demeaning of her husband. And therefore, Paul says, it's really, really important that you respect your husband. And if you don't know how to do that, go to God and ask Him to show you what you can build up I'm not suggesting here for a heartbeat that you give insincere praise. (laughs) No, anybody can see through that. And it's patronizing. It doesn't help. People can see through that. It has to be genuine. It has to be real. And you may have to talk to God about the things that um, are really outstanding and valuable in this person you married. After all, you married him. Why would you do that? What made you be so stupid? You didn't think that when you got married. What was it that put him on the white horse in your eyes? What made him that wonderful guy that you wanted to spend your life with? He's still in there. It's just the other stuff's kind of come out, you know. The dross is now covering the surface, and you got to go back to God and say, "God, I, I must have had a reason. Help me make a list. Show me what I can respect." Sometimes it doesn't take anything to cause abuse to arise, and, and I'm not even, I'm not even suggesting. That physical abuse arises because we uh, gnaw and gnash at each other. That comes out of the heart of a person. But I'm holding before you an example that God has given us of the beautiful relationship that can exist if you will die to yourself and look in the mirror to see the warts in your own life And invite the Holy Spirit to change them. And to make you like Christ. That's the example for godly marriage. I was interested to read, I was reading up on narcissistic personality disorder. Because most frequently abusers are narcissists and they and they have the psychiatric condition called narcissistic personality disorder but the interesting thing about it is while other personality disorders can typically be attributed to events and circumstances that happened in a person's life that have contributed to their to their current set behavior I was rather fascinated to find that narcissism is largely considered a choice that arises out of selfishness. And furthermore, it was interesting that it is the personality disorder that takes the longest term of counseling, I'm speaking worldly terms now, It takes two to three years of weekly counseling to begin to make a dent in a narcissist's personality because typically they don't want to change. They like being me first people. They like the world revolving around them. They like to think that. In fact, they believe it's true. It's not that they just think it, they believe it. The world exists to make me happy. And you exist to make me happy. And if you don't make me happy, I'm going to pummel you to death. Because I have a right to be happy. And to get what I want all the time. I deserve that. I'm an extraordinary person. I I need to be held in the highest esteem. I deserve to be first. That's the narcissist. And it's a choice. That is hard to fix. Because they believe it. And they don't want to change. That's rather astounding. But the thing that is encouraging to me about it is. If they would come to grips with the biblical truth. And submit themselves to the power of the Holy Spirit. They can change. They don't change because they don't want to. But if they were ever broken before the cross, they could change. Because the power of God is available to them for transformation. Marriage is a commitment that is intended to make us holy. It's a commitment... That is intended to be for a lifetime, that in Jesus Christ together we'll navigate the path,'ll we'll negotiate the trials, we'll figure out the problems, but most especially, we'll respect one another, we'll love one another, we'll cherish one another we'll nourish one another, we'll stay with one another until the end. Because we're committed. And when I'm wrong, may God give me the grace to own it and to ask forgiveness and vice versa. I have so much more I want to say in another out of time and I haven't even gotten the kids but we'll take them on another time. Let me let me conclude by this. Marriage is a is a delicate relationship. It's fragile. It really is. And the only one that can really change your spouse is God. And so if you know that. What is the most effective way to change your spouse? Prayer. You need to pray for them. Direct confrontation is rarely an answer. I'm not saying to you at all that there should not be times of frank conversation. And that there should not be times when you, you know, sit down and have a good fight. There is such a thing as a good argument that still respects, still cherishes, still values, but navigates through contrary opinions. That's possible. But if there's something about your partner that's really driving you nuts... The key to transformation is to go before God and ask Him to work on them, rather than you trying to. Because I guarantee you, you'll mess it up just about ten out of ten times. And, and ladies, let me tell you something about men. I, I don't. You may be this way too. I don't know. I, but I know. What, I know what I'm like. You tell me I'm wrong, and I need to fix it. And my natural fleshly inclination is, oh yeah? I'm digging in my heels and I'm not budging. You want to get to me, you better go through Jesus. (laughs) Because he knows just how to get inside and pick away at that problem. I don't know why we're so rotten. Yeah, I do. We're born in sin. It's just who we are. But marriage is a great opportunity to spend a lifetime learning together to be like Jesus. Or, it's a formula for disaster and tragedy. And a lot of that depends on where you go with it. Father, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes and hearts to the truth, that we would be willing to submit to one another out of respect for our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just inside marriage, but in the church, in the body of Christ, that we would learn to be like you in the power of your Spirit. That we would die to ourselves. That we might live unto you. Father, I pray for everyone in this room this morning. As I look around. That has been hurt. By broken relationships. That were not their fault. And they're suffering the consequences of heartbreak and sadness. And I pray for your encouragement and your blessing. I pray, Father, for those who have secrets here this morning of abuse that's going on in their homes because of self-centered partners. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring them under conviction those abusive ones and give them a good look in the mirror this morning and challenge them to be like Jesus and Father I pray for those here this morning that are married and committed to the journey it's not easy We marry the one that we dearly love. We look forward to a life together. But life has hills and valleys and twists and turns and unexpected events and sickness and financial loss and all kinds of stressors that pull against us. Lord, teach us how to walk the road together. To navigate the tough spots in prayer. To let you transform us so that we long for the other's welfare more than our own. Give us godly homes. That we might show the world what the love between Jesus and his bride is really like. We ask it in his precious name. Amen.